again, everyone. I sure hated to leave Panama City because as we were preparing to take our baggage down, my little grandson was up there. His dad had hold of him, and he was saying, bye-bye. And I got to spend several days with little Michael Allen Armstrong, where two years before, we had been there at Panama City, and we were meeting over there in the Holiday Inn. Some of you were down there at that time. And as we say in the vernacular, he was not yet a gleam in his father's eye. And yet here is a new little creation, a unique, once only, once and forever, never before, human being who didn't walk the earth only two years ago. What is the difference between a young married woman and a young married pregnant woman? Well, everybody knows that a young married pregnant woman is happier and uh, she fills out, right? And she looks lovely like an expectant mother. She has a smile on her face. She is uh, lovelier than she will ever be. I've heard people talk about how when a woman is expecting that her face fills out, she just has a loveliness that she develops that other, other, otherwise she wouldn't have. All of these differences, aren't there? But that isn't the main difference, obviously. What is the main difference between a young pregnant wife and a young wife? Well, when you're looking at a young pregnant wife, you're not just looking at one person. You're looking at two human beings, but you can't see the other being. The other being is invisible. So the mother is the host of an actual human life that is just as real as you are and just as real as I am. Because the instant a spark of life is struck by the uniting of the male cell with the female egg, a new human being is underway. And the pattern in those genes and chromosomes in that tiny little microscopic beginning is everything that you shall someday become. Now, we're all familiar with that, and this is not supposed to be a clinic on the subject of human reproduction. But I am looking out here today over a group of miracles because human reproduction and human birth is a miracle. It is not something we can take lightly. Certainly no parent should ever take lightly the contemplation of bringing another child into this world. No young married people should ever simply accidentally begin to do what young married people do and decide, well, as they come along like popcorn, uh, we'll have six or eight or 10 or 11 or 12. To illustrate my point, since President Reagan took office, guess how many human beings have been born and are now walking this earth who didn't exist only eight years ago. Some people, somebody told me, thought about 100 million. No, far more than that. 200 million? Oh, no. 300? No. Four? No. Since President Reagan took office, there are 700 million new human lives walking around on this earth, or the equivalent of the population of India. Now, the reason I bring this up is because of some scriptures that we tend to read over very lightly and we don't really look at them the way they truly are. Verse 5 of the 7th seventh, chapter of the book of Romans is one to which I want to refer right quickly. For when we were in the flesh... Now, that's a strange statement, isn't it? When we were in the flesh. And I'm looking around this room and I'm not seeing anything except flesh. You are looking at Garner Ted Armstrong's flesh, but you can't see Garner Ted Armstrong because I live behind my eyes. 
I live inside of a brain. I live behind the frontal lobes of my brain up here. And the real me, my wife knows pretty well. Matter of fact, she knows me in a lot of ways better than I know myself. But there are a lot of things about me that my wife doesn't know that only the eternal creator God really knows because only God can see behind your eyes and through the top of your head and says very clearly to us over and over again as we read in the occasion when David was being selected above all the other sons of Jesse that God does not look on the outward appearance. God doesn't just see the fleshly human physical creature, the metabolic organism. But he looks inside the heart, and the Bible uses the term heart, not really relating to your physical pump that is keeping your blood supply going, but to the volition, to the character, the personality, the psyche, the will that dwells inside your brain, the real you. So God looks upon the real you. Now, as gross and macabre as it sounds, if you lose your foot, you are still there. And you speak of it as my foot. I lost my foot. It used to be mine, but now they package it up and they do something with it through an operation. We're familiar with people losing their extremities in accidents, in war. There are quadriplegics. There are people who have come back from Vietnam who are consigned to a wheelchair, who cannot even move about, who have lost all four extremities. And to carry it further, you can lose a half of your stomach and part of your lungs and several of your semi-vital organs, like perhaps even have transplants and have a different kind of a kidney. You can lose both of your eyes. You can lose your hearing. And you are still in there. You are still alive. You are there. You still have a mind. You still have a will. You still have a personality. And you are still there. When we were in the flesh, but aren't we in the flesh right here today? Well, what is this we that he's talking about? Who, who is this we? The Apostle Paul is writing to the church, and he is saying to brethren in the church, the first person, personal pronoun, we. Now take a look at the eighth chapter of the book of Romans briefly. And it says, beginning in verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that is, creatures, beings, personalities, that are in the flesh, a phrase which connotes a state of being. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. Are you in the flesh today? If you are, I don't mean what I'm looking at. I don't mean the skin beneath the clothes. I don't mean the flesh. I don't mean what stepped out of the bathtub this morning in all your glory. And you reached for the towel and started dripping all the, you know, getting the dew and the beads of water off of you. I don't mean that. I don't mean that flesh. I mean you. I mean behind those eyes. I mean inside that brain, the frontal lobe of your mind. Are you in the flesh? Now, I want to ask it another way. Who are you? Who are you? What is your name? I'll tell you frankly right now, and I can prove it to you, that you don't know who you are, but it's still a process, and you don't know quite yet. I mean, the you behind your eyes, I mean, now the you inside of you do not know what you shall be, nor do you yet know what you shall be called. I was on the golf course one afternoon, and my son and daughter-in-law came over to visit, 
And she'd been to the office several times in the last several months, and all of a sudden, I was over there on number 15, which is right across the street from my home where I live, and my wife was on the front porch with my son and daughter-in-law, and she said, honey, come here quick. So I got my little cart and left my foursome and went running up, all afraid and wondering what had happened. What's wrong? Has somebody been hurt? Got up to the front porch, and she looked at me with a big grin on her face and says, Tina has something to tell you. I knew immediately, so I took my golf cap off and stomped on it a couple of times, grabbed her with a big hug, and I knew that she had discovered over the last couple, three months, watching for all the signs, that she was going to have a child, but they didn't have the faintest idea what it was going to be. They didn't have the faintest idea whether it was going to be a boy or a girl, whether it would be born whole or perhaps with some disfigurement, whether it would be born blind or deaf. They didn't have the faintest idea, did they? But you see, Tina, before she even married Mark, had always had some pretty good habits dietarily, and she had been very much into vegetables and fruits, and she had been never susceptible to junk foods and sweets. Has great health. She was a gymnast, and she was very, very trim and slim and athletic. And even before they ever thought they might begin to expect a child, she con completely gave up coffee, tea, any kind of substances. She didn't take any kind of alcohol. She would not allow herself a sip of anything with alcohol in it. And for the entire nine months of her pregnancy, she guarded and protected and preserved that little thing that was developing inside of her. With the consequence that when he was born, we discovered he was a boy, and then his father gave him a name. And his name means, who is greater than God? His name is Michael, and Michael was a great archangel. His name, Michael, means, who is greater than God? His name is Michael Allen. I think Allen, if I can look it up, and as best as I can determine, means tall, but I'm not certain of the derivation of the word Allen. Armstrong, I understand. And so now I know very, very intimately a little creature running around, looking at me, and every time he sees me, he says, Papa. And then he almost always adds, golf. <laughs> because, you see, he's seen me in my golf hat, and he knows that we live on a golf course, and whenever he comes out, here I am, you know, or he'll pick up a magazine, or he'll pick up a golf ball, Papa, golf. And so he may think my middle name is golf, I don't know, but it's Papa. And of course, I'd love to go to the grandparents' meeting and hear what Mr. Tackett has to say, because he's a professional grandfather, and I'm just a newcomer. But I've had a lot of experience from other people, including my own grandparents and a lot of other grandchildren, so it'd be delightful to get with all the rest of you grandparents and share experiences and find out about what you think about your grandchildren. Well, of course, you do love them more, I guess, in some ways, than you loved your own children because there's a different, more mature and a tenderer love. And of course, as they say, you can love them and leave them. And when you get tired of them, go ahead, Mom, and we'll see you later. And, and uh, I've heard that, of course, in being prepared for the experience of a grandparent. So here is new wealth on the earth that was never before thought of, has never before been heard of, who has been created according to the mold of his two parents, who would not be here if it hadn't been that many, many, many years ago up in Iowa, only some months after people were getting over the shock of John Wilkes Booth having pulled the trigger in the Ford Theater and shot into Abraham Lincoln, was a little girl born to a family named Armstrong in a tiny town south of Des Moines. And they named their little baby Eva. 
But they were twins because she had another little sister who was an identical twin. And Eva grew up in that period of time when the Indians would still come off of the reservation and come by and beg sugar and coffee and tobacco from her parents. And she grew up and married a young man named Horace. And they had a firstborn son in 1892 named Herbert. And he married a young girl who had graduated from a tiny school south of Des Moines named Loma Dillon. And my mother's graduation pictures are just absolutely beautiful, the way the hair was and the white skirt and the shoes that they wore at that time. And I've seen pictures of her mother when she was only about four and have one at home of my paternal grandmother who died when my mother was only about 17 or even younger, I think. And her name was Belle. So I know a little bit about family genealogy, but it just boggles my mind when I think of all of those happenstances, of all of those circumstances, of that accident that time when my father, for some reason unbeknownst to he and she, my mother and my father had a little surprise coming and they didn't want another child because they had their firstborn son, Richard David. On, and before that, they had two girls named Beverly and Dorothy. And so their family was complete and they didn't want any more children. And lo and behold, she said, Herbert, I think I'm expecting again. And it was little Garner Ted in there and they didn't know it. And I didn't know it. And I sure didn't know what was going to emerge or what he would become. David John Hill tells me that he was almost removed as gallstones. <laughs> he said that his mother was diagnosed as having a gallbladder disease and that she was merely bloated. And they actually took the poor deer to the hospital. And she was in the preparation room. And his father just didn't believe it. They kept talking about it and thought maybe she was pregnant. She was scheduled to go from that preparation room in there on her back and to actually have the operation, and they were going to remove John. <laughs> and the husband came in and absolutely just had to almost overpower the nurses and fight everybody and take her and get her clothes and dress her and take her hobbling on his arm out of the hospital, and so John Hill was finally born. It surprised everybody. That's got to be one of the dumbest doctors I ever heard of. <laughs> woman goes in there pregnant, he thinks she's got gallbladder problems. Well, you know, it's good to think about this because I have grown to very much deeply appreciate and love my little grandchild, to be very, very concerned about not only his physical health and his protection and well-being, but about his education, his training, his discipline, and about what he shall someday become. You know, I have a lot of hopes and dreams for my grandson. It would be marvelous if my grandson, Michael Allen Armstrong, never in his entire life took a look at the centerfold of Playboy magazine. Wouldn't it? Now, what do you think, what do you think his chances are of missing that? It would be wonderful if Michael Allen Armstrong never learned some four-letter words that we're all familiar with that I will not sully this room with, that it'd be wonderful if he didn't have to hear. That's only one blessing of my two deaf children. There are certain words that they've never heard, but other people ensure that they learned them nevertheless. They've just never heard them. They don't know how they sound, but they know how to pronounce them and they know what they mean. It would be wonderful if I could protect that little creature from all of the horrifying things out here in the environment, not only from the infusion of the daily poisons we ingest in our system from all of our prepackaged, dyed, and prepared, and revitalized, and long shelf life poisonous food, 
but from all of the chemicals in our environment and even in the air we breathe. It'd be wonderful if we could protect ourselves from all the poisons around. But inside of you, this human physical flesh, is the real you. And I want to think of yourselves today, and you to think of yourselves and me of myself, as being basically two different kinds of creatures. The one is the one we're looking at, which is merely a host. And the one I want to talk to and talk about and get us to thinking about is the real creature inside. It says here, they that are in the flesh can't please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Your life, your existence is constituted in the spirit. That is, it is spiritually composed. It is of spiritual essence. And it is just as real as little Michael Allen was the instant of conception and just as real as you were from the instant of conception until the time of birth. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, one of the most outrageous questions I ever heard asked in a classroom many years ago, and it was David John Hill who was asked the question, a professor whom I shall not name, I guess just because of the lesson in which we were going through something about some of the deeper parts of God's Word in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians or Romans, I forget. He looked right at him in the front of about 17 or 20 other students and said, David John Hill, do you have God's Holy Spirit? David said, and I don't know what all he came up with. He sounded almost like Dukakis answering Peter Jennings. <laughs> Peter Jenner, Jennings said to Dukakis, he said, now look, uh, you are this, that, and the other thing on about five issues, and he ticked them off on gun control and on abortion and so on, and showed that he was leftist and liberal, but Senator Lloyd Benson is against gun control, he's, a, he's against abortion, and he's against this and so on. You are poles apart, who's right? Did you see the debate? Remember that series of questions about five? He said, who's right? We're sitting there and I'm shouting at the television set, answer the question. He never did. He did a fancy little minuet. And he danced around and he dazzled us. And Senator Lloyd Benson is a very wonderful man. He's a very good man. He's an experienced politician. And he went on and on and on. And he went around by the mulberry bush. And pretty soon he came back. And what a wonderful vice president he would be. And his maturity didn't say one word about the issue. Didn't say one word about the disagreement. In other words, he just did not answer the question. And they claim he won the debate. John didn't answer the question. He just rambled around and I think he said all sorts of things and finally the professor said, you didn't answer the question. I just wanted a yes or no answer. I don't want you to answer me audibly, but I would like you inside your own mind to be able to answer the question. Do you, that is these outer people I'm looking at, these fleshly hosts that I'm looking at, these human beings with their eyes looking at me, concealing what is going on inside, do you have God's Holy Spirit? I'll tell you how you can find out. First of all, you can go back and analyze what it was like when you received God's Holy Spirit. You can go back even before that and analyze what it was that brought you to the point that you realize this human physical hulk, this host organism, needed to die. Not only needed to die, but richly deserved to die richly deserved it. That you saw yourself as the murderer of your own grandmother. You saw your, yourself as a cheat 
and a liar and a crook and a hypocrite. You saw yourself as a collection of lusts that did nothing but try to satiate your own egotistical vanity and your own physical insatiable appetites. And you looked at all of this and it looked like a pile of something seeping out from underneath the garbage can and you were filled with a feeling of absolute revulsion. And you couldn't stand it and you had to get rid of it and bury it. Years ago, some of my young friends and I were down to the old swimming hole near the Willamette River in Eugene, Oregon. They played a terrible trick on me. They long since are gone. They both were killed in an automobile accident. And they were identical twins, and we grew up together, sang together, played basketball together. Their names were Ronald and Donald Cox. Well, I was out there in the old swimming hole, and I was wading ashore, and all of a sudden something hit me right in the chest, splat. And I looked, and I was covered with maggots. They had found an old dead carp and walked up and slung it on me. And that carp was about nine-tenths rotten and was just teeming with maggots. I looked at my chest and all over my arms, and these little white worms were just doing these dances all over me. And I couldn't stand it. And just with a feeling of, yeah, you know, I ran back and dove in there and grabbed sand and everything and water, and I was just scrubbing myself, trying with the water and the sand of the river to get rid of those awful things, and my flesh was just goose pimply, and my goose pimples had duck bumps on top of them. I just felt absolutely awful. Now, to me, that is an analogy of the way we need to feel about ourselves when we see the incredible sins that are hanging on us like so many maggots. And with the same feeling of just stomach-turning revulsion, we want to be cleansed from all of that and get rid of it. And when we do that, we are supposed to surrender to Almighty God. I will never forget, because I've read a great deal about it, including from some of those in the Japanese Imperial Navy, Mr. Ito, who wrote of the disintegration, the destruction of the Japanese Imperial Navy, of all that occurred during World War II and that led finally to the surrender of the Japanese Empire aboard a great American battleship in Tokyo Bay, where General Douglas MacArthur strode out there in a short-sleeved shirt with his very familiar corncob pipe, except I don't know if he had the pipe then, but the hat that we're all familiar with from the pictures of that, of that era. And here came the little Japanese, impeccably dressed in their cutaway coats with their stovepipe hats and the formal attire of the Western world. The Japanese word for yes, I think a lot of you know, is hai. It really means yes. So, of course, MacArthur read all of that famous speech that has been repeated over and over again, renouncing war, talking about the hostilities had come to an end, and invited one by one the representatives of different governments to sign. In recent years, there has been a very good motion picture where Gregory Peck played a very remarkable role, made you think he was MacArthur. It was called MacArthur, and it showed that scene as accurately portrayed as Hollywood knew how to reproduce that scene that took place on that day. And the little Japanese held nothing back because the Japanese Empire had lost more than 100,000 people in the firebombing of Tokyo, and more than 72,000 people vaporized in one instant in Hiroshima, and 110,000 dead within two days, and more dead in that gigantic firebombing of Nagasaki. 
They had lost thousands and thousands of aircraft. They had lost over 1,100 ships. They'd lost the entire tonnage of their merchant marine. They were absolutely on their backs, helpless. Never before in history, well, maybe back in the ancient days of some wars that were fought with spears and swords, but it was certainly not the hallmark of modern warfare, going back to the Hundred Years' War and the wars between the, Rus the Russo-Japanese War in 1905 or World War I in 1916 through 1919, had it been conceived that a nation would demand unconditional surrender. Instead, they sued for peace. They had negotiated pieces. They declared armistices. They declared ceasefires. And they negotiated and sorted out politically what the new lines of demarcation would be, or a demilitarized zone, or the concessions that would be made by the defeated to the one who had been victorious. But in this case, Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin got together and demanded unconditional surrender. And the Japanese were aghast, and so were the Germans, when Harry Truman re-advocated the same doctrine. Unconditional surrender. So the Japanese stood there, their little cutaway coats and their tall stovepipe hats. The Japanese representative will now sign. Comes forward to the pen and signs away everything signed away their homes their wives their public and private buildings their lands and domains signed away the emperor's divinity signed away his horse access to the palace ground signed away everything now during the fire bombing american b-29s had been told to be very careful not to bomb the imperial palace i think on a couple of occasions a stray bomb lit on the ground somewhere but they meticulously tried to avoid it because they realized that would be the catalyst that would make the Japanese fight to the last man, woman, and child, and they didn't want to do that. Consequently, one of the finest old hotels in Tokyo survived. When MacArthur moved into downtown Tokyo, he simply requisitioned the hotel. He just reached out and took it. Because, you see, the Japanese had surrendered unconditionally. The hotel didn't belong to some hotel owner or to the nation or anybody else. The nation was prostrate at the feet of Douglas MacArthur and our armed forces who steamed into Tokyo Bay and the aircraft began landing and the LSTs and the transports began offloading men and here we took over Atsugi Air Force Base in Yokosuka where I went and saw the big caves and the shipbuilding facilities and where only a few years after the war my aircraft carrier docked during another war. And when MacArthur was still at that time the commander-in-chief and was there in Tokyo while I was there, they surrendered absolutely positively holding nothing back and they surrendered unconditionally did you surrender to God unconditionally did you give yourself did you hand over you and did you say I have no use for me anymore I am at the end of my rope I've come to the absolute condition of extremis I may as well be dead I'm no good to me, I'm no good to my family, to my loved ones, I'm no good to draw breath. I don't deserve to live. If you fell a little short of that, if you made an intellectual decision, if you made a decision to change churches, if you made a decision to adopt or embrace doctrine, if you decide to go along with the family, or go along with the movement, I feel very, very sorry for you. I feel very sorry for you if you arranged an armistice, if you arranged a negotiated peace, if you are coexisting with an enemy, if you are right now a person who has a DMZ inside of you, 
and you dwell on either side of a demilitarized zone, and you have not given yourself unconditionally and wholeheartedly to Almighty God. Because as I ask you, not the flesh, but you inside of those eyes, do you have God's Holy Spirit? It's up to you before your eternal Creator God, not up to you before me, to come up with an immediate and a joyful answer. Praise the eternal God, yes. Or, if you can't quite do that, say in a very little timorous voice, Oh, I certainly hope so. And that may be good enough. Because to want to is something God understands. And if there were certain steps that you didn't take as you got to that point where you wanted to unconditionally surrender to God, and you realize looking back that you really have fallen a little short, that realization is half the battle and it's never too late to make up for lost time and to go back and cover a few bases you may have missed. Notice this language. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You are in the spirit. That is, you're spiritually constituted. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell, take up his residence, his abode, like you are a tabernacle, as we exist in the Feast of Tabernacles, and that we are tabernacling, that is, dwelling temporarily in a human physical body. Now, there was no cessation of that life, even though the spirit in man was absolutely unconscious and completely departed from and not a part of the body of Christ. But I want you to think of the transitional period of that great God in heaven above and the very creator God, as we read in Hebrews 1 and John 1, who said, let there be light, and who made Adam with his own hands and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and presented Eve to him after the miraculous removal of his rib and the formation of Isha from Ish, that is, flesh of your flesh and bone of your bone, answering, fitting, perfectly, responding to you as your other half. And without her, you're not complete. And do you not know, as God says, that they twain become one flesh, that a husband and wife are the perfect family unit, that we are symbolic of God the Father and his children, that we're the closest known human relationship to show us the marvelous plan of God. That great creator being, emptied himself, left heaven, left his throne, strode away from a sea of glass, came down to this earth, and struck a spark of human life, though the spirit was intact, in the womb of a virgin named Mary. And that virgin was responsible as she ate and drank and conducted her life for the knitting together of the flesh and sinew, and the viscera, and the muscle, circulatory, skeletal, and nervous system of a little baby boy who was to be born in a manger in Bethlehem and who was to be named Yahshua. We pronounce it in English, Jesus, but that's an English pronunciation of the Hebrew word which is identical to the man we know as the man who led the Israelites after Moses' death across the land, across the river into the promised land. Joshua, Yahshua was his name, who is the Christ, Emmanuel, in which he dwelt. The fullness of God's Holy Spirit, God in the flesh, had filled every nook and cranny, every cell to the end of the tips of the fingers and the toes, to the lobes of the ear and the tip of the nose. The body that people saw and with which they were familiar during the three and a half year ministry of Jesus Christ. I want you to think of it that way as a mold, because after all, does not the Father impart with the mother between the two of them, 
even some of the characteristics of maternal and paternal grandparents, which can be in evidence and be very clearly seen when a child is born into a family? And are they not made according to a mold, just exactly like the factory had created a mold and cast some product that you can recognize from the mold from which it came? You look at these little babies and little children here in mother's arms. Look at a son or a couple of brothers. and Look at the family familiarity. There is a mold there. So it says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said so. He said, if you've looked on me, you've seen the Father. But you've not known him, even as you do not know me, you reject me. He told his own disciples that very same thing. That if you've seen me, you have seen the Father also. Yet, he says through John in the third chapter, no man has seen God at any time. So therefore, you cannot look upon Almighty God the Father, because to do so would cause your instantaneous death. Your eyes would melt away in the sockets of your head. But Jesus Christ is called the divine K-A-R-A-K-T-E-R -A -A -E character, meaning stamped impress, exact mold, exact replica, almost like the clone that we speak of today, of God the Father in the flesh. Because he dwelt fully in the flesh. He was wholly and fully developed spiritually to fill out and to fulfill in the human physical flesh the perfection of Almighty God. We are not. We're still in embryonic and in fetal shape, most of us. We have not grown to maturity. We are not in the womb of the church as a full-term spirit being already working around in there and nudging Dad when he gets too close at night with a little elbow and turning over now and then ready for the birth. We still need growth and development and protection of the mother because the mother is the church, spiritually, Jerusalem above, the mother of us all, and in the womb of the mother, through the nutrients that flow from the mother's body, from the ministry, the word of God, prayer, meditation, interaction between other Christians and the world, resisting Satan the devil and the temptations of human flesh. In that way, we are constantly adding to and taking on cells and developing as a child in a womb develops and comes toward partrition or full term. Notice this language again going on in verse 9. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That's very, very clear. And if Christ be in you, the body, the you that I see, is dead because of sin. You ever been to a post office where you see a veritable rogues gallery of wanted posters? Now, I want you to realize that up there in heaven is a rogues gallery of wanted posters and your face is on it. And it says beneath your face, the face I'm looking at, and my face, just the way I look at it every morning when I shave, this face is up there with a wanted sign on it. And all of us, it says up there, wanted for horrifying sins. And then it starts listing them all, hundreds of them, dozens of them. And I mean, they're so filthy, you don't even want to know the words because they're just too embarrassing to even begin to portray. Especially if it's in a little video cassette where the whole thing could be replayed in living color. That'd be embarrassing beyond belief. And so the Apostle Paul tells us, and I'm going to flip back just a little bit here to the sixth chapter to just remind us a little bit in the sixth chapter of the book of Romans, of where it says... When we were in the flesh, verse 5, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that is the spiritual we, the inner we, 
that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, just like little Michael was a brand new human creature in the womb of his host, which was his mother, Tina, and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. No, I would not have known sin but by the law, because the law merely points out what is sin and what is righteousness, and it's more positive than negative. Thou shalt have no other gods. It's a positive command, not merely negative. For I had not known lust, and that's true, because a natural human baby lusts from the moment of the first awareness when he comes out of his mother's womb. And he is a collection of vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed, a collection of human physical appetites, of hunger, of a desire to be pleased, a desire to be fed, with an attention span of less than two seconds of quickly picking up one toy and throwing it down when a child who is visiting has picked up another one. I've got an expensive toy here. I don't want that one. I want the one you picked up. Give it to me. And a fight ensues. And that's what we are as little children growing up. And the law points out what is lust and covetousness because those are not sins that are immediately evident to us. So you have to be disciplined. You have to be educated. You have to come to know what is sin and what you don't do and moods and attitudes that you do not allow to get into yourself. It's really embarrassing when you see a mature, grown-up, human individual in your 40s or 30s or 50s or 60s throwing a tantrum like a one-and-a-half-year-old child. When I was down there in that vicious hurricane and saw how closely people would gather together and saw their lack of complaint and for four days sat there just, you know, almost uh, uh, consciously exercising patience, telling Bronson day after day, I don't care if we don't get out of here till after the feast as long as we finally get out of here. If we spend the feast with these people, so what? I'm in no hurry. I'm not going to complain. And I just had a rain on myself, and I had a bit in my teeth and some rains, and I was holding myself back and saying, whoa, now, be thankful you're alive, number one. Be thankful you got a bed to sleep in, even if it's hot and sticky and you can't put the sheets on because there's no air conditioning and it's humid. Be thankful you have food to eat, you have a roof over your head, because a half million people out here do not. So I was thankful for those things. And I simply held a tight rein on myself, and I was not going to complain. But I've seen people who will complain, and the simplest little, little things will upset them, including people who are supposed to be in God's church. I've seen people get edged out of line, or people who don't like it because somebody cuts in front of them in an elevator, or in a traffic line, or people who arrive late and don't have enough food. People to whom the little things of life can become so nettlesome and they can react so irresponsibly, not placidly, not with dignity and maturity, not analyzing the situation, controlling their emotions, but just spitefully, like a little child, immediately starting to scream and rant and rave and just, I want mine and I want it right now, like spoiled children. Paul said, when I was a child, I thought as a child, but now I put childish things away. We now see in part, and we're known in part. We see through a glass darkly, but then we will be known as we are known, and we will see him face to face, and we will become evident for what we really are. Will we be ugly? Will we be like a thalidomide baby, missing limbs? Will we be distorted? Will we be a gross monster with two heads? Will we be a Siamese, pair of Siamese twins? Will, will we be deformed? Will we be mongoloid? Will we be spiritually something that is hideous? Well, if we are, we will never come to full development and to full birth. He goes on to say in the sixth chapter, 
verse 8, but sin taking occasion by the commandment, that is sin being made evident by what the law says sin is, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. That is, he was unaware of it. It was just absolutely not an issue. I was alive without the law once. He's talking about the human physical flesh, the real Saul who became Paul. But Paul wasn't alive yet. Now he's talking about Saul, who was still standing there holding the clothing as they were beating poor Stephen to death. I was alive without the law once, and yet he was a Hebrew, and yet he knew the law, and yet he recited it, and yet he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and he could have recited it forward and backward, I have no doubt, because they were able to do that, although I don't know if they did backward, that's just perhaps an expression, but those Jewish leaders knew the Old Testament scriptures, and many of them could literally quote the entire book of the Psalms, all 150 of them. There are records that they could commit to memory, and to do so in a cadence, and almost like a song, tremendous sections of the Bible that would put us to shame. Paul knew those things, I mean Saul did, because he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, brought up at the feet of the greatest doctor of Jewish Talmudic law, Gamaliel. So he's saying, I, Saul, was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, that is, when the reality of his transgression of it, the spiritual breaking of God's law, of which he was guilty internally, sin revived. Suddenly he's looking at this ugly monster climbing off the table like a Frankenstein. And he's saying, that's the real Saul. This haughty, heartless, cruel, cold individual who was dragging husbands away from the grasp of their wives and the screams of their babies, who was dragging Christian people out of their homes and taking them down here to a torture chamber and beating their bodies and putting them on the rack until they would curse God and die. So he is saying, this monster climbed off the table. He found out that sin revived. And he saw it in its, all of its full-blown ugliness. And I died. Now, did you? All right, remember my analogy of the post office? Think of your face, and here's the wanted poster. And up there in heaven is every rotten, evil deed you've ever done. Except with a difference, if you died. There's a great big black stamp, and right across the middle of your nose and your eyebrows is a great big ugly rubber stamp, and it says, Deceased. And here's the big post office in heaven with your, with your picture there, wanted for all these horrible, gross, ugly, unspeakable crimes and sins. But right across it, it says deceased. Because you, that is the human physical creature I'm looking at, the same flesh that was the host in which all these things were perpetrated, the same hands, the same feet, the same members of the body, the same mouth, the same nostrils, that took in and imbibed and tried to sate itself with all these physical passions sitting right here, visible and evident. But if the law is satisfied, if it says deceased across your face up there in heaven, then you are dead, you human physical beings. And you are merely an host to a little creature just as precious as a little bitty baby being taken with such care by mom right there to be put down so she doesn't wake the poor little thing again. So absolutely precious, priceless, beautiful in God's sight. I dare say to any mother that her own children's little miniature toes are the sweetest things she can look at, that his little fingers are her, her little nose, everything about that little child's body is absolutely beautiful. And don't you think that Almighty God wants to look down inside of these hosts, these human, physical, fleshly beings here? 
and see, in spite of what we look like in our exterior, something beautiful, something so precious and so tender and so lovely in his sight that he says, that's one of my kids. Those are my children. They're being made in my image. Now, you think about that. The Apostle Paul says that no man has ever yet hated his own flesh. We don't hate our own flesh. I've seen people grossly deformed. I remember one member of the church that I saw years ago at one of the feasts who had been a World War II veteran and had suffered terrible fire damage, I think, in an airplane, and I forget, but most of his nose was burnt off. The poor fellow had his whole face just burnt so badly that the eyes were little tight drawn slits and the nose was mostly missing, and it was merely huge, red, ugly skin. You tend to be repelled by ugliness. You tend to be repelled by a physical deformity. You tend to feel inferior and not quite know what to say if you are whole when you see someone who is missing both limbs or three of them in a wheelchair. You don't quite know what to say. You don't want to say, oh, how did that happen? Or, and and we, we kind of lose our ability to communicate when we are faced with something like that. That's our inferiority, our feeling of guilt because we're whole and they're not. But you know, God looks beyond and inside that ugliness, and I don't care what you look like in your exterior. I don't care how long your hair is, or how tall you are, or how obese or how thin, or the scars, both visible and invisible. It doesn't matter. Down inside of that human physical host that I'm looking at can be the most precious, beautiful, little creature in Christ that your Heavenly Father can look down and say, oh, isn't he lovely. You know, one of the prettiest songs of recent years, and it was probably about 10 or 12 years ago now, and I've got to think of this gentleman's name because he's one of two or three very popular, very famous black singers who is blind. And you'll know who it is when I tell you the song. He had a daughter, and when that little baby girl was born with his blind hands, he felt all over her face. He put his hands there and he felt her entire body. And just spontaneously out of him came a song. Isn't she lovely? Isn't she beautiful? And I mean that song is just so moving. A blind man talking how lovely was his little daughter. And he could never see her. Wouldn't you like to have God the Father up in heaven above singing a song like that to the little creature in Christ that is inside of you. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that sweet? And yet sometimes I think we show him a facade that is ugly and grotesque and distorted. And we are not allowing that little creature to shine out of our eyes as often as we should. We hold back. We're embarrassed. I think oftentimes it takes us, because of our inhibitions and the man-made society and the, all of the many, many inputs that make us humanly, physically, psychologically what we are, that shape and form our personalities and give us our so-called hang-ups, our timidity, our inferiority. We don't want to be Pentecostal, so we don't sit here in services and say, praise God. We don't want to appear to be some holy roller, so we don't say, God bless you. Uh, we are inhibited, and, and so we kind of duck our heads and say, well, we'll see you later, or, well, goodbye. But even the Spanish expression, adios, go with God, we don't find it easy to say. 
And so once in a while, as friends get together, and it even seems like sometimes we have to have an artificial substance like alcohol to loosen our tongues, we have to have a couple of drinks, a couple of beers, and eventually we'll look at one another and the climate will be just right and we'll say, you know what, you're a great guy or you're a wonderful lady and I just think the world of you and I want to let you know that I, I really have a lot of love for you. But boy, do we guard that little creature. We make sure he doesn't talk much. We keep him quiet, keep him down in there, hidden behind those eyes. We keep him obscure. Don't let people see that. That's embarrassing. You know, when I step out of the tub, I'm so thankful my door is closed. At my age, at 58, in all my glory, I'm kind of ugly. But you know, God looks down inside that human physical body, and hopefully there's some innocent, sweet little thing in there my mom used to call Teddy. Now, I don't know what my name's going to be, but I know God has one, and maybe it's not even decided upon yet because it's going to be determined by what is to be happening in the next weeks and months and years of my life until I come full term. Because God used to name children and people exactly what they were. He named them according to the circumstances of their birth, the purpose of their life, and their character. They were named according to what they displayed to their parents over a pretty protracted period of time. Sometimes they didn't have a name for months until it was determined what they would look like and, and what they were like. And then they put the name on them as to what they were. And we go through a list of books and a list of names and pick something that sounds good. And uh, some of the names are almost hilarious. I remember my wife knew a very large family and they had so many children, about 12 or 13, they ran out of names. And she named two kids, A1 and A2. And that's a fact. And you ask her, I'm not telling a lie. That's the absolute truth. A1 and A2. Just ran out of names. I'm tired of naming them. And that's the best way to keep track of them. And so, ran out of names. But God says that we're going to have a new name eventually. So he says, the sin taking occasion, verse 11 of Romans 6, by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin in all of its gross, horrible, macabre, demonic evilness, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment, made evident by the commandment, by the law, might become exceeding sinful, revolting, and ugly. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, that is the fleshly host, am carnal, sold under sin. I'm so glad that the Apostle Paul became the Apostle Paul, and that he was Saul before he was Paul, because he was therefore able to write the following passage that helps us so very greatly in our daily battle, our daily fight, and as you heard in the sermonette, the immune system that we need to have to create a spiritual fever to battle off all of these horrible demonic germs. The, the thing, and I'm going to paraphrase this, paraphrase it in modern English, I'm sorry. The thing that I do, I, I wish I didn't. What I wish I could do, I don't seem to do it. And the very thing I hate, I find myself doing. If then I do that which I would not. Let's change the I a little bit. Not that we're going to do violence to God's word, but if I, the human physical host, if I, the human fleshly appetites, do that which I, the little me down inside that doesn't reveal himself very often, wish I didn't then I consent unto the law that it's good. Now then, it is no more I, the inner me, the little spiritual creation in Christ, that do it, 
but sin that lives in these rotten members. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, you see, he's making that distinction, isn't he? In my flesh dwells no good thing. The human sensory organs, the perceptions, the appetites, the desires. For to will, to want to, is present with me, but how to perform, to follow on and accomplish that which is good, I find not. For the good that I wish I wouldn't do, I'm sorry, the good that I wish I would do, the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I don't want to do, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, that is, if I, the exterior flesh, do that which I, the little inner me, wished I wouldn't do, it is no more I, the inner me, that does it, but sin that lives in my body. I find it a law, it's axiomatic then, that when I, the little person that is seldom revealed inside of me, the new creature in Christ, want to do a right and a decent and a good thing, evil is right there present. There's some other force, some other voice, some other pull or tug that is trying to divert me from that course to do the right thing. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. And you know, sitting here in services, you can do that. And on your knees, you can do it. And reading a magazine article or a booklet or just thinking introspectively of certain things that are profound to you, you can do it. David, as a young man sitting out there on a rock, would get his harp and he would begin to say, How lovely is thy law! It is my meditation all day long. And you could take any aspect of God's law. Thou shalt not steal. And if nobody stole, of course, you could think about how you completely abolish all law enforcement agencies, do away with all the jails, and we'd save billions of dollars. And David would just think about God's law in its application, how if people lived it. And he said, It's my shield, it's my banner, it's my protection, it's a lamp under my feet. It is the flag under which I walk through life. He's, he just went over and over. Thy commandments are my meditation all the day long. A lot of people think, well, why meditate on Ten Commandments? I can just take them off like that and go my way and do something else. Because David, with the inner person, was a man after God's own heart. In spite of the fact that he could not be begotten of God in the same way that we can be following Jesus Christ's ascension into heaven. Yet there was a character there, and David was a repenter, and though he was a violent man and a man capable of enormous sins, he was a man who could repent when he was dead wrong. And finally, when it was brought to him, he would repent, and David saw, I'm sorry, God saw that broken heart. And so David, when he wrote Psalm 51, said, A broken and a contrite heart thou wilt not despise, O eternal. It's easy for us to meditate about how beautiful and how spiritual and how holy in the inward man, sitting here in our seats, is the law of God. But it's difficult on a moment-by-moment, day-in, day-out basis to make that little creature in Christ get control of this big creature out here, this host being, and force it to walk in that way of God's law. So he says, I see another law in my members, and it's at war against the law of my mind. And sometimes it shackles me and handcuffs me and puts me in a straitjacket. And it's like I'm struggling with a dumb thing. And I'm helpless. I'm suddenly just here. I want inside of myself to do the right thing. But, oh, well, uh, one more can of snuff. Uh, one more cigarette. Or, or because you're short-tempered, you lose your temper. Or you tend to cheat a little bit. Or you want to stretch a story. Because, after all, old John will laugh a lot harder if you just tell it a little bit different way where it was. And uh, there's so many things that will come along to capture and to take us prisoner, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, 
Who shall deliver me? Look at that language. He differentiates between me and the body. You know, this church uh, went a little too far, I think, way back in the early years, and perhaps we do to some extent still. To make a differentiation between the doctrine of the so-called immortality of the soul unless we provide a very easily understandable and viable and accurate and biblical alternative, which is the spirit in man, or call it the human spirit, which is just as spiritual as any so-called soul ever was, because God unites his Holy Spirit with our spirit where Mark and Tina united fleshly organism with fleshly organism and produced a fleshly grandchild, Almighty God ignites spirit, unites spirit with spirit to produce a spiritual child made in the image of Almighty God. Why does he need so many? That's a simple answer to that one. How many stars are there in the universe? Well, there are a billion billion in the Milky Way. How many galaxies are there? Billions. How far do they extend? Your limited mind cannot comprehend the vastness of eternal space, but the mind of God can. 700 million or hum more human beings since Reagan took office, and what is their destiny? The same as yours. And eventually God says that he is not willing that any should perish of the human physical vessels that are possible recipients of his Holy Spirit, that, but that everybody should come to repentance and should receive eventually salvation. Why? Because every one of those stars is a sun, and every sun has in its orbit captured any number of planets, and every one of those planets could someday be populated, and the process could go on and on and on. But we dare not glimpse presumptuously or have an unholy curiosity into those portions of God's plan which are not revealed to us. He says, O wretched man that I am, that is the human physical host, who shall deliver me, Paul, from old Saul's body, from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, the inner me, I myself serve the law of God, but with my human hulk, my flesh, the host organism, the law of sin. I am so thankful for that passage of Scripture that gives us a tremendous insight into this daily battle that we fight as God's people. Over in Revelation 2 and verse 17 is a Scripture I want you to look at for just a moment. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcometh, and you don't do that on your own, but by the power of God's Holy Spirit, will I give to each of the hidden manna. Now, that's a symbol of Jesus Christ. Manna was the sustenance of the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, and it was rained out of heaven. And that's why during the days of unleavened bread, we emphasize, thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days. Notwithstanding what other church leaders have said, well, that just means if you happen to be a bread eater and you get around to eating bread, it probably ought to be unleavened during the days of unleavened bread. No, because the positive part of the days of unleavened bread is that Jesus Christ said, I am the bread of life which has come down from heaven, and if any man eat of my flesh, he shall never die. And that means spiritually imbibing these very attitudes that we're trying to deal with here today out of this pulpit and in this exercise of all of us gathered together to allow God's Holy Spirit to flow through a human vessel 
and to be portraying pictures and thought images and concepts into our minds, which is the same thing as the bloodstream of a mother pumping nutrient into a growing fetus, a fetus developing into a human being in a womb. That's exactly what we do here today. So Jesus Christ of Nazareth, as our elder brother, we are drinking in of him today out of this pulpit. We're drinking in of him in these services. These are his words and his inspiration and his thoughts and concepts that he brought to this earth as a pioneer from heaven and gave it to carnal sinning man. And as we drink into these concepts, we're actually receiving nutrition and we are developing and growing with every heartbeat of our spiritual mother into full-term children who will someday be born of Almighty God. That's the way you imbibe of Jesus Christ. You think about him, you read about him. And remember that Jesus Christ of Nazareth said he was not ashamed to call us friends. He put his arm around those disciples. John leaned on his breast. And we read in the book of Romans how we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now, if you're a co-heir of a great fortune, are you a lesser heir or are you an equal heir? Do you inherit everything that is left, everything that is there, the entire inheritance? Well, obviously, you're a co-heir and you share equally. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Philippians that God will not neglect, he will not abandon, he will not forsake that good thing which he has done or which he has created in us until the day of the Lord Jesus. He will not forsake it. And Jesus Christ prayed before he was crucified, Father, I thank thee that of those whom thou hast given me, I have not lost a one save the son of perdition, which was foreordained. But he said, Keep them, Father, in your own name, that they may be one as we are. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you need to envision as your great, powerful, elder brother, whose face shines like the sun. And in the day of your inheritance, you're not going to stand there naked and afraid and incomplete and immature and terrified lest God's wrath hurl you to some other horrible fate. You're going to stand there with your older, mature brother with his arm around your, shoulder, his, your shoulders, looking up to his father and saying, Father, this is my friend. Notice the similarity? We look alike. We make the same decisions. We talk the same way. We treat people the same way. We've suffered the same kind of temptations. We've gone through life walking the same kind of a way. So, Father, let us inherit your kingdom together. He's your elder brother. He's your friend. He's your high priest. People wonder, where do we go to get help? I knew a Catholic one time who said, I got to see a priest. Catholics have this doctrine of needing expunging, needing a free conscience, needing to go through the rosaries, needing to get rid of something by penance. And so when they come under terrible guilt, they say, I got to go see a priest. Do you think of Jesus Christ as your high priest and you've got to go see him? You've got to talk to him. You've got to go in there and dive on your knees, get to that bed, close that door. Oh, Father in heaven, I need your help in the name of Jesus Christ and cry out to him when you need that help. And you can't wait to get there to talk to him. He's there. He's available. He's your high priest. That's his function. That's his service he offers you. He's instantly available. He's going to answer the line the minute you dial the right number. When you pray, therefore, say, Our Father, because that little child in you has a father. You've already been begotten, and he is your father. And you pray to that father. 
A lot of people play spiritual games. They play funny little religious games. They're just a part of some spiritual or religious organization. They've been, you know, convinced of a lot of doctrine. They've joined a church. They go to church. They go through a lot of routine. What a shock they've got coming at the day of the second coming of Jesus Christ. If they did not, in that point in time in their lives, stand there like the little Japanese, when God says, do you repent of everything you've ever said, thought, felt, and done? Are you ready to die and give your life because you're a sinner and your life is forfeit? You say, Hi. unconditional surrender. And God will settle for not a thing less. He says here, we will be given to eat of the hidden manna, and we do so every year. We're doing here at the Feast of Tabernacles, and we do so in the Days of Unleavened Bread. And I will give him a white stone. Now, that white stone is a symbol of one of the building blocks of God's church. Peter was nicknamed a stone or a pebble. And the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. The little stone is like a beautiful cube of pure white marble. And in that stone, it says, a new name written which no man knows, saving he that receives it. Now, when my son told me on the very day of my grandson's birth, Dad, what do you think of the name Michael? We want to name him Michael. I said, oh, that's a beautiful name. I don't know that Mark researched the meaning of the name Michael, having the faintest idea. But I'm thankful my grandson bears the name of an archangel and that the name means, who is greater than God? What a marvelous name. I used to hate my name when I was a kid, Garner, awful. But, you know, because it means gatherer or to gather. And my middle name is a short from Theodore, although my legal name is Ted. It was not Theodore, but still it comes from Theodore, which means gift of God. And Armstrong means strong arm, a strong-armed gatherer who is a gift of God. I love that name, but that's not going to be my name. I'm deciding every day and every week and every month in this inner me that you can't see. You can only see Garner Ted up here. My wife sees the inner me a little more than you do, and God sees the inner me all the time. And eventually, he's going to give me a new name. You know, sometimes parents name their girls after the various concepts of faith and hope and charity, and there are girls named Mercy. And I imagine that men wouldn't want to go around with a name like Mercy or Charity. But I should imagine that we'll get over some of those habits of machismo and the difference between the sexes when we are meeting Jesus Christ face to face. And someday, in a pure language, in a brand new language that only the angels and Almighty God can hear, as the Apostle Paul said, he was like one caught up into the third heaven and heard unspeakable things. That it's not right, not fit, not correct for a human being to ever hear. And we're going to be given a new name, and that name is being decided based upon what we are and what we are becoming. Is your name going to be patience, stalwart, indomitable, imperturbable? Will you be called generous? Will you be called the forgiver? Will you be called servant, the helper? Grace, faith, hope. What will be your new name? One thing I know. When you were in the flesh, you could not please God. But I'm looking around here today and all I see is flesh. I don't see a single spirit. Do you? But next time you're with one of your brothers 
and you're talking in a relaxed way, let your guard down and let shine out of those eyes that little tender creature in Christ and express yourself a little more because only by the exercise of that little creature in Christ is it going to grow and develop and so someday inherit a new name and inherit eternity with our elder brother Jesus Christ. Well, my wife and I have got to go on our way here very quickly, and uh, Benny has taken our bags out. We're going to Wagoner, Oklahoma this afternoon, and I understand there's a great big front along the way with a whole lot of thunderstorms that we've got to kind of dodge, but I'm driving. And since I'm driving that airplane, I would appreciate it if you'd make sure at least one or two angels are along, sitting out there just relaxed on the wing, watching what I'm doing and helping me because I'll have to turn on the radar and we'll be flying through a lot of rain and we'll try to avoid all the thunderstorms and the biggest of the hail. But we've got to get to Wagoner if we can. Now, we're not going to get to Wagoner at risk of our lives, so if it's socked in so bad we can't make it, but we'll put down somewhere else. But we'll appreciate your prayers and your prayers for each other and your prayers for that precious, sweet, little creature in Christ inside every one of us. And let me tell you in closing, I love you people. And that's the little creature talking. You're my brothers and sisters, and I sure appreciate what you do, and I love you all, and God bless you, and thank God for you. Uh -huh.